Dear Father, to you this morning we come with thankful hearts that we have another beautiful day in which to serve you and the opportunity to do it in God's house, to worship together, to fellowship together. Lord, I thank you for these Christian brothers and sisters and pray that you'll minister to the need in each heart and life today. Lord, we thank you for this church and for the proclamation of the gospel which occurs here, for the opportunity to serve you in so many different capacities. And Lord, I thank you for the many people who do participate <coughs> in one way or the other. And Father, we're all needed for the ongoing work of the kingdom of God. Now, Father, bless us especially as we spend a little time again in your word this morning. We know that the word is quickened by the power of the Spirit, and so we ask that he might open our minds and teach us the truths that will help us to better serve you. In Christ's name, amen. I'd like to begin by reading the first 11 verses again of chapter 15 of Genesis. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram said, O Lord God, what wilt thou give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Since thou hast given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but the one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give this land to you to possess it. And he said, O Lord God, how may I know that I shall possess it? So he said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him, and cut them in two, and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down on the, upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. We noted last week that Abram obviously was very concerned about the fact that he was without a son, to inherit all that God had given to him, not only of his physical possessions, but to inherit the knowledge of God, to inherit the relationship with the Lord, to inherit the promise that had been given, as we read it clear back in the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. But again, as we noted, God meets us at our point of need, whatever that point of need might be. If we're anxious, if we're concerned, the Lord is there to, to meet us if we but trust in Him. And I think this whole passage is a declaration of God's presence and of God's hearing our prayer, of God's knowing our need, even as the Scripture says, before we even call. And so God is reaching out and touching this man. We emphasize the fact that this passage talks about the Word of God, that eternal truth that is important for us. And, and literally without it, we have no hope. Uh, you, you think about the fact that historically the church has tended to drift away from the Word and to become fixed as an institution and, and to, to trust in its tradition 
rather than in the Word of God. And I think the Lord periodically brings His church back and reigns us in and, and focuses our lives again on the Word of Truth. We noticed that this scripture that we read this morning says that the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And I noted the fact last week at the end that we can't really tell for sure what type of a vision this was. We don't even know for sure if, it, if the entire chapter was a vision, which some commentators believe, or if it was sort of, as I mentioned last time, kind of a live-action vision where God is giving a vision, but Abram is actually physically doing things in relationship or in response uh, to this particular vision. Three important promises were given by God there in that first verse. He says, Do not fear Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Do not fear is, of course, a command, but it's a command based on the reality of the promise that God is adequate, that there is no reason to fear because everything is in, under control. God is here and God is at work. And then secondly, that God is a shield. He said, I am a shield to you. And the word there for the Hebrew word for shield literally refers to the metal or wooden shield that was used in warfare by the ancients. God was the one to shield Abram against all attacks. And I think about the last thing we did last week was to read the 91st Psalm where God promises to be alongside his people and to carry us through to carry us through both physically in this world and then, of course, ultimately into eternal life. And it's by God's very nature that he is a shield. He doesn't have to stop and think, oh, yes, I, was, I forgot, I'm supposed to be a shield to this person. God is a shield by his very nature. And if he lives in our lives, he is our shield. And that's what he is saying here. Thirdly, then, your reward shall be very great. Literally, it says, your very great reward. And it, Im it implies, I am your very great reward. So literally, we could read here, I am a shield to you, and I am your very great reward. It's not that God is going to give us something separate from him that is a reward, but he is our reward, and all that he has made and all that we can possibly imagine and beyond are ours in him. Abram's faith and his obedience would enable him to know the reality of God's presence in this life and for eternity. And this concept of reward is repeated often in Scripture. One passage I'd like to just take note of this morning is found in, the Luke, in Luke chapter 6. It's Luke's version of the Beatitudes, at least in part. In Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 20. And turning his gaze on his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you, and cast insults at you, and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day, and leap for joy, 
For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Then down in verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Again, Christ making the emphasis upon the reward. The reward in this particular passage is saying, in heaven. And of course, the promise of that reward is in itself a reward to us as we live in this life. And then the ultimate reward comes when we stand in his presence out of this evil uh, world in which we live now. So the reward that was promised to Abram is the, is the reward that is repeated to us through Christ and through many of the passages in the New Testament. We're told back here in the 15th chapter, the first verse, and we won't read it again in Genesis, but we're told that this vision came after the events which are described in chapter 14. And it's very possible that after the great and, and, and stupendous victory over Chedorlaomer, and then the wonderful encounter with Melchizedek, that Abram had a period of emotional and spiritual depression. He had been on the mountaintop, and there was nowhere to go but down from there, you might say. I think that God had promised to him that a great nation would arise from him. However, time was marching on, and he was getting older, and his wife was getting older, and he still remained childless. And therefore, the thought came to me as, as I read this that in some ways he was like Elijah, who had the great miraculous encounter with God and the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel and outraced the chariot back to Jezreel and then was threatened by Jezebel and took off into the desert and was really emotionally distraught and drained. And, and many, I've seen many articles and how this is compared to modern pastor burnout or, or whatever. But I think a lot of ways Abram was like Elijah in this particular situation. As Elijah was out in the desert, he complained to God that he was the only one left who really was faithful to God. And of course, God told him that that wasn't so. There were still 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. But I think Abram here is complaining a little to God when he said, O oh Lord, God, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, Eliezer was probably a fine man. Uh, of Damascus indicates that he, has, he is of Syrian extraction. The scripture teaches us here, or Abram says, he was born in his house, so he was probably a relatively young man who had uh, been born of Syrian ancestry, living amongst uh, Abram's workers. And somehow he had grown up to be a very trustworthy young man, probably someone who had been given great responsibility by, by Abram, a kind of a steward in many ways, maybe even a financial counselor and an and administrator in some way, or his father was, and thus the son was learning in these same areas. Uh, it's hard to know. But it was very common practice in these ancient societies for uh, a man who had no children to adopt another person whom he trusted very implicitly, someone who was, of course, considerably younger, 
and named that person as his heir, heir to all that he possessed if he had no children to inherit what he possessed. And it was, I think, also common to do that if your children were incompetent. There were many who had incompetent children, and as a result, they chose someone competent to inherit all that they had because they didn't want to see it squandered and wasted. Remember what Solomon's words were? You know, you, you work and you labor and you build up this great sort of kingdom of wealth here on earth, and then you have a child comes along, just squanders the whole thing, and he says, what's the purpose of it, you know? Well, many, to avoid that, would adopt someone who was considered competent. Now, Lot had relatives. I, I mean, <laughs> Abram had relatives, and of course, one of those was Lot. Lot was Abram's closest relative in the area. But Lot was obviously not interested in the life of Abram. He had opted out, and he had gone, chosen to go live in Sodom. And his relationship with Abram was strained at the best. And it seems, of course, as we study the life of Lot, that he wasn't competent anyway to inherit all that Abram had and to inherit the promise. And there were other family members, but they lived far away in Haran. And they were not part, they were disassociated, we could say, from what God had called Abram to do. God had called Abram to go to Canaan, and he had made the promise through Abram. He had not made it through Abram's brothers or their families. Now, those would be married into Abram's family, but that was not to whom the promise was made. And so, there was no way that there was anybody who was related to him who could inherit. So, he says to God, this Eliezer of Damascus is going to inherit, Lord. Unless you do something, he will inherit all that I have. At that point, you'll notice God makes the promise that he had made to Abraham going clear back to chapter 12. He makes it more specific and he makes it more emphatic. This man, meaning Eliezer, will not be your heir, but one who shall come forth from your own body he shall be your heir. Then, God being the great teacher that he is, there was never a greater teacher who ever walked on this planet than Jesus Christ, our God. And so he took Abram outside and he showed him the sky and the stars in the sky. Now, this tells us something about the vision, doesn't it? If he takes him outside to look at the stars in the sky, we know that it has to either be a night vision or it has to be night in the vision. Right? It has to be one or the other. I mean, if the whole chapter is a vision, then, you know, it's nighttime in the vision or it's night when the vision is occurring. And so he takes him outside. Now, for us, it just doesn't have the same impact that it would have for Abram. Because... In the day in which he lived, first of all, there was basically no pollution. So the skies, if, if they were not cloudy, were basically clear. And there were no city lights to, uh, to you know, destroy the brightness of the heavenly firmament. So he took him out there to look at the stars. And can you imagine the stars? They must have blazed like diamonds against black velvet. I'm sure it was a moonless night, just to make it more emphatic. And uh, he showed him the skies. Now, I think it's important for us to note that God is making what is a figure of speech here. 
when he says to him that your descendants will be as numerous as these jewels which are studying this black canopy, God does not mean that literally. Because first of all, you go out and it's, it's been determined that with the naked eye, if you could go to the four quadrants of the earth and watch the, the sky at night, you could count 6,000 stars. If your eyesight is 20-20, is uh, you could pick up 6,000 stars with the naked eye. Well, certainly his descendants would be more than 6,000, and we know they would be multiplied millions. But we also know that since God was the creator of all the stars, he knew how many stars were out there. And we're discovering, of course, that there are trillions upon trillions and hundreds of trillions of stars out there. I mean, there are clusters of stars that are so far away, they look like one star, but they're made up of billions of stars. There are more stars in the firmament by a, a, a factor of a thousandfold than there are human beings ever born on planet Earth from the time of the beginning to this very moment. So he didn't mean, literally, that there would be 6,000 or that there would be trillions of trillions of descendants. Because if you consider the reference to refer to not only the Jews or the Hebrews, but to all believers, all of us who are Abram's children by faith, that still would only be probably hundreds of millions, nothing like the number of stars that is out there. So we understand this as a figure of speech. But it was very impressive because, you know, if you don't really lie out on, the, on your back on a grassy hillside and say, one, two, three, <laughs> try it sometime. <laughs> Pretty hard to keep track. But you just look up there and you see all these stars. It just looks like a bunch. You probably would guess that there are just thousands and thousands when really all that you could probably count if you literally could pick them all out would be about a thousand where you are at that given moment in uh, time. But it was very, very impressive to Abram. So impressive was it to this man that Abram's anxieties and fears melted away and they were replaced with faith in God's word. If God said it, and I look at the stars of the sky and I see it, then obviously it will be true. God will bring his word to pass out of my body through my wife. The scripture says, as a result of this, gives us one of the most important scriptures, one of the most important verses of all scripture, which is the sixth verse. Then he believed in the Lord. And he that is God reckoned it to him as righteousness. There are three key words in that passage I'd like to take a minute to look at because they are absolutely critical to our understanding of how it is that we stand in Christ or how any man or woman has ever stood in God's presence. First, the word believed. We've read already in Genesis that Enoch, we're told, walked with God. And we're also told that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And implied in both of those statements is faith, is belief. One could not walk with God, the other could not receive grace from God if that were not true. But this is the first time in Scripture that it flat out says that he believed in the Lord, and thus he reckoned it to him as righteousness. 
The word translated believed here has many derivatives that are used at various places in the Old Testament, all of which imply faithfulness, fidelity, true commitment. We're not talking about some shallow belief. Oh, I believe in democracy. I, I believe in socialism. It's sort of like you know, watching the news and seeing people out marching uh, yesterday over in the Soviet Union uh, because they're honoring the Bolshevik Revolution. You'd think nobody in his right mind would do that. <laughs> but uh, they're doing it because they have a certain belief, and, and it does elicit a certain active response from them. But of course, if Yeltsin could possibly turn off the miracle or, or bring, bring off the miracle, and uh, economically the Soviet Union would make it and begin to forge ahead, they'd forget that Bolshevik stuff very quickly. Because most of the people are very concerned about how well off they are, how they're doing financially, physically, materially, and if that's okay, basically everything else is okay up to a point, of course. And we've seen that, of course, reflected in our own uh, recent election. I, I don't think principles had much to do with the choice that was made. It was made purely on the basis of one man promised to turn it around more than the other man was willing to promise and thus people went for it. The word used here for belief means absolute certainty. It means total assurance. It means complete support, as in the sense of the strong arms of a father around a helpless infant. That helpless infant is absolutely secure in the strong arms of that father. And so this is the concept behind this belief here that Abram has. It's, it's not a transient thing. It's not a light thing. It's not the simple belief that you and I have that the chair which we're sitting on will continue to support us through this class. Of course, if we fall asleep, it might not, right? But uh, what's interesting is one of the derivatives of the Hebrew word here for belief is the word that we use a lot, and that's the word amen so be it. You know. In other words, we believe because it is so, and it will be so. So from this we understand that we're not talking about simple head knowledge. That is not synonymous with the word believe here. And you probably are aware of that there's, there's been an ongoing debate. It's not a new debate at all. It goes way back in church history. But there's been an ongoing uh, debate within Christendom, within evangelicalism here in America, uh, having to do with uh, uh, whether if any time at any place during your life you ever believe God and, and you're thus were saved, then, then it's okay no matter how you live after that, you will be saved because that's all God required is that momentary expression of belief. Or do you have to live a life which demonstrates your belief? And, of course, they're arguing back and forth, and books are being published about, about it one, one side and the other. I think it's very clear from Scripture. Simple head belief is not what God talks about when he says believe. And that's not what Abraham did. He didn't just believe God in a, in a, in a you know, cerebral way. He believed God with the entire being that he had. <coughs> he believed God with absolute certainty, total assurance that God's word was true. Assurance so great 
that he would stake his very life on it. Sometimes we rather tritely read the Matthew, the Romans 10 um, passage. Ho hopefully not, but sometimes I've seen it quoted in what seems like a rather flippant way. Romans 10, 9 through 11. Well-known passages, passage. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Again, this has got to be understood as a, as a belief that goes to the very heart and core of the individual. Absolute assurance that what God has said is true, and therefore I commit my life on the basis of that assurance. In order to become a Mohammedan, all you have to do is say that there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. I just said it. Does that make me a Mohammedan? No. But that is all you have to say to become a Mohammedan. It will save you from the edge of the sword. Uh, it will keep you from being taxed with a double tax if you live within the Mohammedan world. Now, they do expect you to, after that, live in a way that a Mohammedan ought to live. You ought to go and bow five times to Mecca. You know, you ought to go to the to listen to the Muzap there, give his mournful cry uh, from the minaret. But it's kind of a flippant thing, really. It doesn't require heart belief for you to be accepted as a Mohammedan. And many Christians, unfortunately, have thought they have entered the kingdom by that same process. By just confessing with their mouths in some simple way, there's nothing wrong with it being simple, but I mean simple-minded way without really it, it being a matter of the expression of the heart. And, and then we wonder why it is that they don't live like a Christian. Well, chances are it's because they aren't one. They've never really been transformed. The belief is nothing but, but a little momentary uh, fleeting uh, acknowledgement but it hasn't been that commitment of the life to, into the arms of God, trusting in Him for, for all that we stand for to the very end of our earthly life. The second word that's given in this passage in Genesis 15, 6, is the word reckoned. <laughs> we have a tendency to use the word reckoned as uh, the, in the old Western way, well, I reckon so, you know. That, of course, is not really what it means here, theologically. The word means to think, to account, to judge, or in more uh, modern theological parlance, it means to impute, to credit to the account of Abram ceased to trust in himself. And in, instead, he wholly and only trusted that God in his mercy would impute righteousness to his account. Now, I'm sure he didn't think of all those theological terms necessarily, but the commitment was just as real. 
Now, Christ had not yet died in history. And to me, this is a, at least to me, this is clear from my own understanding of Scripture. Not everybody agrees, but this is why I understand script, what I understand Scripture to be telling us. Christ had not yet died in history. That is very true. I mean, the promise seems to have been given clear back in Genesis 3.15. But what did Abram understand about that? We have no idea. The Old Testament would, would continue on and, and the Jews would have a concept of Messiah. But did they have a true concept? Many of them apparently did not, at least. But Scripture teaches us that Jesus Christ was the Lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth. Thus, as our faith in God's Word makes Christ's blood effective for our righteous standing. In other words, Christ died for you. He died for me. We trust in that death and in that blood. We have been made righteous because God has imputed the blood of Christ to our account and our sins have been removed. So, in God's eyes, the same was true for Abram. Although Abram didn't know Christ and didn't know the blood and didn't know all of the ramifications of the teaching that would come from Moses or through Moses on Sinai and that would come through Christ himself as he walked on this planet. It was still that blood of Christ that would make Abram righteous. Later, under the law, blood sacrifices would be offering, offered as a foreshadowing of the blood of Christ that would be shed on Calvary. The book of Hebrews makes it quite clear <coughs> that the blood of those sacrificial animals did not atone for sin. Atonement comes only through the blood of Christ. Since atonement comes only through the blood of Christ, then it's got to be the blood of Christ that atoned for Abram's sin and made him righteous. So whether one lived before the crucifixion or after the crucifixion, it's the blood of Christ which alone cleanses, atones for the sin and enables God to impute righteousness. Now, I hope you can handle reading a whole chapter here. I'd like to read Romans chapter 4 because I think that's what this chapter tells us. I think it does so quite clearly. And it relates directly to what we're talking about here. Romans 4, beginning at verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And Abram believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven, whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. 
Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say reckon, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, Paul makes it clear. Not while he was circumcised, but while uncircumcised. I mean, the seal had not been given yet. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of righteousness of the faith, which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who not only are of the circumcision, but who also follow in the steps of faith as our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Which means, of course, in this case, before the law, as it will explain here. For the promise to Abraham and, or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. If, if, if you can actually live up to the law and, and fulfill the law, then faith has no role because you can earn your salvation. And, and it's, a, it's a given as a wage, not as a favor or as a gift. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it is by faith that it might be in accordance with grace, in order that the promise may be certain to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you, in the sight of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. In hope, against hope, he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations according to that which, he, which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what he had promised, what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore also it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now not only for his sake only was it written that it was reckoned to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be reckoned as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered up because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Now, I see Paul going back and relating to Abraham here and talking about him before circumcision, before the law, and, and yet tying this reckoning as righteous in with the death that Christ would die on Calvary, which Paul understood because he was post-Calvary. But Abraham did not understand because he was 2,000 years or so before Christ was even born. And so this righteousness, which was reckoned to Abraham, 
was based on that work which Christ would do on Calvary. Because God does not live within time as we do, right? We're subject to time, but, but God is the creator of time. He lives outside of time. And the decision was made for Christ to die before God ever went ahead with the, with the plan. I, you know, it's like we talked about before. If I were God and I looked at plan A, I'd said, forget this whole thing. I'm going with plan B, you know. <laughs> but God chose not to go that way. And he, he chose to go this way. And we are the recipients of that blessing. And the more we look at the world and the horribleness of this world and the fact that, I mean, look at Yugoslavia just as an example. You know, religious belief and I use the word belief lightly here, seems to be at least part of the root of the trouble over there. I mean, it's ethnic, it goes way back in time, but it's Muslim, Christian, and the Christians are divided into Orthodox and Catholics, and I mean, it is really a tragic situation over there. And we think, oh Lord, how are we gonna, how, how's this mess ever going to get straightened out? Well, when we all pass over Chile, Jordan, it will be straight. And we'll be in God's presence, all clean by the blood of Christ, that righteousness imputed to our account just as he did to Abram. That will be true for us, and we'll stand alongside Abraham and Sarah and Isaac and Jacob and Rebekah and Rachel and Leah and the others. It's going to be wonderful. And, we're, and, and our, the foundation of our standing is the same. There's not going to be, you know, one standing up here, one standing down here, well, you're an Old Testament Christian, oh, well, you're down here, you know. No, it's all the same. Because God imputed it to Abram as he did to us. The word righteousness here can be translated also as justice. And he counted it to him, reckoned it to him as justice. God counted Abram's belief or trust in, his, in, 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 in God's word, as satisfying God's justice in that Christ had already paid or would, and in God's eyes, had already paid the penalty, penalty for sin. Now, who is the standard of righteousness? Who is the standard of justice? Our problem is that uh, sometimes we create our own standard of righteousness and justice, and then we try to live up to it, and we say, well, I'm doing pretty well. Huh. I'm not as bad as Joe Blow over here, you know. But God is the standard. He himself is the standard of righteousness and justice. And if we're legitimate in our thinking at all and we know anything about Scripture, we know we fall far short of that standard. I mean, we don't even begin. It's sort of like, you know, the old uh, deal at the circus where you hit the hammer and tried to drive the little uh, arm up to the bell. It's sort of like we swing our little hammer and, and the thing doesn't move off zero. You know, <laughs> uh, in, in terms of the righteousness of God. And I think that's true for anybody who's ever lived. Now, Moses proclaims this righteousness as God being the standard in the song of Moses. Let me just read a couple of verses from that in Deuteronomy 32, in verses 3 and 4, which we, where we read, For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, his word is per work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And the implication is absolute righteousness, 
absolute uprightness, absolute justice. And that beyond human ability to even measure absoluteness. This is who God is. And yet it is before that God we must stand. A God who is perfect in all His ways. Unfortunately, so often we, we bring God down. We kind of uh, uh, weaken His perfection. <coughs> And uh, we sometimes think that because we have been so kind as to become believers in Him, and we go to church and we put a few dimes in the offering plate, that somehow God owes us one. Yeah, He owes us one, all right. But we don't want the one He owes us. <laughs> that has got to be set aside. He owes us nothing. And we owe Him everything, and we cannot pay. And therefore, Christ had to die that that payment might be made. And so God, out of His absolute mercy, imputes that to us so that our count, I mean, we ring the bell every time. Not by our works, but because of the righteousness He has imputed or, or given or credited to our account. And we've got to have that righteousness. It was interesting, years ago, I went calling with a pastor of, of the church we were going to that time and got talking with a particular individual and uh, the man says, yeah, and I suppose you're going to say that I've got to be perfect in order to get to heaven. And, and the pastor says, that's right, you do. <laughs> in fact, you have to be as perfect as God to get into heaven. He says, well, that's the matter with you, all you Christians. You think that you can, you can be goody-goody and that you can get there. And he says, no, there's no way. <laughs> he says, you have got to have that perfection given to you by the mercy of Christ. And that's true. And unfortunately, we live not only at a time, but, but in, the, in, in, the, uh, in the history of, of a movement. Not, I'm not talking about the CMA, but the work of the Christian church in general, where there's a constant tendency to move off of faith to works. There's this constant tendency to keep slipping away from faith and over to works because that's the natural human inclination to feel that you've got to do something to earn God's favor. And it just can't be done. We must have right, the righteousness of God in order to stand in His presence. Since we by our own effort can't, obtain, can't attain that, God has chosen to impute it to us by faith. Let me read a couple of verses from Isaiah 51. First couple of verses. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was one, I called him, then I blessed him and multiplied him. Look to the rock, look to the quarry from which you were hewn. Today, of course, we hopefully are standing on the rock, Christ Jesus. But we are also the children of Abraham in that God, we believed and God reckoned it to us as righteousness. Again, as I said, on the very same basis 
And, and Messiah was not only promised, but Messiah came as an incarnation of the very Word. And it was the Word of God in which Abraham trusted. God said it, and he believed it. And that faith was, as I said, implicit in total. And then that Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he was the incarnation of that righteousness and of that justice. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Jesus, the Messiah, became righteousness incarnate. The perfect, total righteousness of God walking in the flesh on this planet. And the only one who ever has in that righteousness. And it is that righteousness that therefore becomes imputed to us. Again, back in Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's the purpose of the law, right? It became, as Paul would say later, our schoolmaster, the one to show us where we fell short. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being <coughs> witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe, for there is no distinction... And I think that distinction, reference to no distinction, not only means ethnically or, uh, you know, in the terms of Jews or Gentiles, I think it means historically also. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God publicly displayed as a propitiation in His blood, through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. That is until Calvary, when all uh, were put on Christ. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. God is just and yet he is also the justifier. God does not bend his righteousness or his justice to make us right standing in him. The payment had to be made total and complete. And when it says God passed over the sins, it doesn't mean that he just pretended like they weren't there. It simply means he was looking ahead to Christ and that would ultimately be the basis of the imputation of righteousness to these people, although historically the blood had yet to be shed. Thus, 
what we have here in Genesis 15:6 is the first statement of the doctrine of justification by faith. Clear and straightforward. No person who lived before the law was given or lived under the law or who lived after the crucifixion could be justified by his own works. Elijah, Enoch, David, Abraham, Moses, you name the person. He was not justified by his works. He was justified by his faith. And we often quote Ephesians 2, 8, 9, don't we? Uh, as, as a reference to underscore that concept. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is absolutely and completely and totally the gift of God, not as a, as a result of works, not even of little works, not even of a slight move in that direction, that no one should boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Sometimes we look at our lives and we say, if I'm God's workmanship, <laughs> he better sharpen his tools or something because I don't feel like I'm a very good work that's being created here. But we have to view ourselves as God views us under the blood of Christ with righteousness being imputed to us so that we are clean. And the scripture, as remember what Christ told Peter, he says, you are clean, but not all. You had to clean your feet, so to speak. You know, where the, where the rubber meets the road, we pick up things of this life, and, and we need to, to bring that before the Lord. But that is not threatening our eternal stand if we already are in Christ, because that sin has already been paid for. The sins we haven't even committed have already been paid for. But in order to maintain that fellowship between us and the Lord, we need to keep bringing our sins. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to cleanse us. Why? So we be saved again? No. So that we restore that fellowship, restore that communication. Because that's so vital to us. The example of Abram is, is a very important precedent for the present presentation of the justification by faith doctrine as we've already seen in Paul's writings. And we'll see again here if, as we look at this third chapter of Galatians, where he again uses Abraham as his uh, illustration, where he says, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Christ Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith. Even so Abraham believed God and was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, foreseeing this, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed with Abraham, <coughs> the believer. Abraham is one amongst us. We shouldn't view him as somebody different or who stands at a different place in terms of God's standing. He stands alongside us. He sort of is the archetype of, of believer, however, and one we should look back to. James uses the same example. He also uses Abraham. It, you know, Abraham is such a wonderful example that all the, many of the New Testament writers uh, used him. In James chapter 2, verse 20, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abram believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. James is arguing here against antinomianism, which was something that was very prevalent in the first century. And that is the idea that faith alone guarantees salvation and works are not needed to validate that faith. And that's back to this argument I was talking about that exists today. There are many today who are antinomians who feel that you ought to uh, uh, just believe, and as long as you believed at any point in time, why it's okay. You don't have to obey. You don't have to live the life of Christ to show to the world that what you proclaim is true in your life. Jesus, or that is, James is not here proclaiming a salvation by works. Martin Luther struggled with this. And he wasn't so sure that James belonged in the canon at first. But James is not proclaiming a salvation by works. He's saying that if a person's faith produces no good works, then probably his faith is not genuine in the first place. It's merely an intellectual alignment or some kind of a mental affirmation and not a true commitment <coughs> to God himself. If the new birth shows no signs, if as a result of the supposed new birth, there is no sign of life, was there really a birth of a living child of God? Well, let's, let's finish with this one verse here in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if any man is in Christ, he is what? A new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If the life which has supposedly been born shows no new things, but only old things, by definition then, the new life has not come. It was just a, a momentary flight of the imagination and didn't result in the seed being planted, the baby being born. Now the baby may come along and be kind of infantile for a while, and a lot of Christians are. A lot of us sometimes feel that way, don't we? Sometimes we feel like we, we grew up to be a kind of a Christian teenager, then we regressed back 
to being five again, you know, in the Lord because of the circumstances which come along in our reaction to them. But hopefully every one of us can see the growth that's taken place in our own lives. And we can see how we were a child in the faith here and now we've become an adult in the faith up here. That we've gotten past the milk stage and we're to the place where we're after the meat of God's Word. Hopefully that is true. And that we begin to react differently to those around us and to the world. And we act in a more Christ-like way. Hardly perfect, right? Sometimes we pat ourselves in the back and say, boy, you know, I really handle that situation pretty well. And then something hits us from the other side and suddenly we're, <laughs> we wonder what in the world, you know. The flesh is still there. We're still dragging it around with us. But God is working to perfect us because we are what? His workmanship in Christ Jesus. And so was Abram. And you'll notice that God said he didn't even waver. And yet we go back there and we read it and we say, well, it sure sounds a little bit like wavering to me. He says, God, how am I going to know this is so? You know, and, and, and later he says, well, you know, at least Sarah, she laughed at the idea she was going to have a baby a year from this time when she was 90. Most of us probably would, you know. The thought is a little ludicrous. But yet, at the foundation was faith in God's Word because God is never going to give us a false statement in Scripture. 